Well, good morning. Can you guys hear me out there? Yeah? Okay, cool. All right, well, welcome. Good to see everybody. Um, I know you guys are going to be really upset, <clears throat> but we're not going to do a review today. We're just going to jump into the new stuff. I know everybody is grossly disappointed by that. So, okay. Uh, so as you can see, today we're going to begin to talk about soteriology. Soteri soteriology is the study of, I would ask you what soteriology is the study of, but, um, but last time I checked, Bruce can... Um, uh, can read, and so um, he would say, "Hey, it's a study of salvation." All right, so let's let's pray, and then we'll just we're just going to jump right in the deep end. Father, um, thank you so much uh, for this time that we have here. Um, thank you for bringing us together, uh, getting this new year um, this new year started. Uh, just help us to glorify you in this class and everything that we think and think and say and do as we uh, continue throughout our day. Uh, we love you. We trust you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So um, just real quick, uh, you may remember I was wearing a hat last week. Um, so I, I took the hat off, as you can see. And so when I turn around, you get to see the nice inverted Hanuk um, yarmulke that I have on the, the back of my head. And again, um, I bumped my head like 20 years ago. Uh, two weeks ago, I, uh, over a period of about 20 years, um, there was, you know, there was a knot growing on my head. And so uh, about two weeks ago, I had it, had it removed. And so now I've got the inverted yarmulke and the, and the scar to go with it. So um, if you see that, don't, don't think I bumped my head and that explains the, the um, content of the class or anything like that. So, all right. Uh, so soteriology. So a couple of quick notes here. So this topic becomes very complex very, very quickly, okay? Uh, the most basic understanding of salvation, you know, being saved by grace through faith, um, or as we would say in, you know, kindergarten or first grade, or, you know, Je Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, it's, uh, the gospel is a message that can be underst understood by essentially anybody, um, anybody, you know, north of, I don't know, kindergarten, you know, that if you can understand what right and wrong is, then you can understand, um, you can under, essentially understand the gospel, okay? Now, there is an element of that, that uh, very important element, that where the, the spirit is what enlightens us. And so we may understand the concepts of the gospel, um, without the Spirit, but we can't understand really what the gospel means without the Holy Spirit um, enlightening us, okay? Um, but once we get past that, we, it, it's like layers of an onion. And it's layers of an onion that it doesn't matter how many layers you pull off, you, you never reach the, the core of that thing. And so, um, you know, the greatest minds in the history of the world have spent lifetimes and then stood on top of each other's shoulders to, um, to understand and to, um, to, you know, to dive deep into, um, you know, the understanding of salvation, of God, and we, we never, ever um, fully comprehend him, and we never, ever actually 
get to the bottom, the, the most profound um, levels of, of soteriology, or in any theological topic for that matter. Um, the organization of this class, the schedule of the class, it's still a little bit in flux. It'll kind of be dictated by kind of the nature of the questions um, and the nature of the comments and, and stuff that I hear. However, I will say that um, we're, there are certain things we're going to cover. We're going to cover the various aspects of salvation. Um, everybody, no doubt, has heard of justification. And that, especially in kind of our quasi-reform circles, that's the thing that most people, I think, tend to, to dwell on, camp out on, is the idea of justification. It's a, uh, the idea of the, it's the setting of a, it's like you're in a courtroom and you're the accused. And, um, you know, God pronounces you not guilty based on uh, the work of Christ, okay? But there's also other aspects of salvation, things like adoption, which is my personal favorite. Um, it's, it gives us the ability to call God Father. It, makes the, it is what um, allows us to call him Father and not um, just the idea of some distant, distant God, right? He, because he actually adopts us. There's the idea of sanctification. There's the idea of glorification. There's lots of different aspects of, of sal salvation or redemption. Um, and so each one of them has a slightly different, I'll say motif or area of, of, of emphasis, but they all describe one very beautiful thing and, and ultimately the work of Christ. Uh, we're going to talk about the order of salvation, otherwise known um, as the ordo salutis. That's a, um, that's a Latin phrase, and of course it means the, the order of salvation. And um, that's actually a profitable um, thing to, to study. And we're going to kind of hit the very beginning of that today. Um, but the, the bulk of the conversation is going to take place in the future. And then we're going to talk about you know, historical views and development. Um, Y'all seem really interested in, when, when, uh, and really engaged when we walk through kind of the development of the doctrines of, of Christology. Um, you know, fully man, um, fully God. Um, uh, those, those two natures are, are not confused or combined, um, but they are uh, together in, in the one person of Christ. And as we walk through the development of that doctrine, our understanding, the discovery of that doctrine, um, you know, there was a lot of engagement there. And I, I was um, blessed by it. I hope y'all were too. So we're going to try to do a similar sort of thing when we, when we talk about salvation. And then, of course, we want to talk about the connection to other doctrines, because you've heard me use the analogy of, um, you know, we tend to think of, of uh, these various areas of doctrine, whether it's Christology or it's eschatology or it's, you know, these different things as, as like individual um, atomic like marbles that just kind of roll around in the drawer and then they might bump into each other every once in a while. Well, in reality, all the different areas of theology are all connected. They're very, very tightly woven and um, woven together. And so, um, when we have an error in one, it kind of permeates the others. And if we really understand one, then that also can, can help permeate others as well.
And then finally, um, you know, this is a, a topic, an area, a set of topics that, you know, people tend to be very, very, um, including me, uh, tend to be very, very passionate about and hold very, very strong um, uh, opinions that we've grown up with, that sort of thing. Um, and so, um, you know, there's, uh, I'm, I'm, ex I'm anticipating some lively discussion and some, some really good questions and things of that nature. And I'm, ju I'm just gonna kind of say up front, we're not gonna be able to dive deep into like every topic, you know, every week. And so you may ask a question and I'm gonna do my best to, to give you a reasonable short answer um, but in reality, some of the questions you may ask may warrant a multi-week study, which we have planned a little bit later, okay? And so um, feel free to ask um, whatever you'd like, make whatever comment you feel is appropriate. Um, but just if, you know, if there's gonna be something, okay, we're gonna need to dive deep into that, please be patient with me. And, um, you know, we will ultimately, we will ultimately get to it, okay? But then, you know, one other thing is we also have to understand that we're not going to understand everything. You know, we, we never will. No human being um, can fully understand the things of God. Okay? I think Calvin said you can't stuff the infinite into the, to the finite. So you can't stuff God into to our, little, our little minds. So the rest, pretty much the rest of the day, for the rest of the, the hour, we're going to get into an exposition of John chapter 6, verses 25 through 51, okay? And this is just going to be our kind of our little introduction into um, the topic of soteriology, and it's kind of almost under the heading of, of the call of God, okay? And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll walk through it, um, just making observations about the, te the text, interacting a little bit about, you know, through, as we go through the text. And then um, at the end, we'll make some theological observations. And then I'll show you how it kind of ties in with everything else. All righty. So for context, as we get, get into John chapter 6, verses 25 through 51, uh, Jesus at the top of uh, John 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. That's the first four, uh, 15 verses of, of John 6. And then he, we have the um, a story of, of Jesus walking on water. And um, that's the next couple of verses, the next few verses. And then in um, verse 22, the crowds cross over the Sea of Galilee and they're looking for him. Okay. So now we get into, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 25. It says, John, John, John the Evangelist writes, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. Of course, th them is the, the crowds, okay? Because he's there with his, his disciples. Uh, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
For on him God the Father has set his seal. Okay? So, a quick observation is that um, people often see Jesus as a means to a purely materialistic end. And if you think about that, think about either things that have gone through your own mind early in your, your Christian walk, and I'm guilty of that as well, right? Or um, comments that you've heard friends or family say, or, um, you know, things you've seen on TV, that sort of thing. A lot of times people look at Jesus as a means to gaining something that, that they want, you know? But the idea here, um, the truth is that Jesus is the end, okay? He is the goal. He is the prize, for lack of a better word. Um, I've got that word telos there for end. Can anybody tell me, you remember what telos means? We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's, it's, you can translate it as end, but it's not like the terminus of something. It's not the, the last thing of something necessarily. The focus is on it's the goal or the target, right? And so the idea here is that we have a group of people that are, quote, unquote, following Jesus but not because of who he really is, but because what? They, they received bread, right? They, were, they, they got their tummies filled, okay? So in the last little verse there, um, right at the end, he says, uh, for on him, that's the, the son of man, on him God the Father has set his seal. So what is a seal? I'll wait for an answer on this one. What do we normally today think of a seal as? Okay, you gave me the right answer. I was looking for the wrong answer. <laughs> no, that's okay. No, no, no. no. To, you know, today, when I first started running across the word seal in, in, in the Bible, I, I thought of seal, I was thinking of like hermetic seal, right? I mean, think about if you uh, seal up Tupperware it so nothing can, can get out, right? For some reason, the Roach Motel just uh, popped into my head. You know, roaches check in, they don't check out. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's not uh, a seal where um, there, there's no loss or escape or anything. It's exactly like Stephen said. It's, uh, it's authentication. So what we need to do is think back to, in ancient times, um, you know, if they wrote a letter and then dripped wax on it, and then, the, you know, a king or somebody important would take their, their signet ring and seal it. They would, they would give the seal, um, seal of approval, kind of that sort of thing. So upon whom did, uh, did the Father set his seal? The Son of Man. So who can, let's talk a little bit about what, what the Son of Man is. What, what the, when Jesus calls himself Son of Man, what do you, what do you think he's getting at? Pardon me? Fulfillment of Scripture. Going back to what, Daniel 7? Okay, because Daniel 7 talks about Son of Man on the clouds in the Ancient of Days and things like that. But even there, what does Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, indicate? When you think about who he is, he is God, but he's also man. So Son of, son of Man can 
can also you know, kind of be translated as the son of Adam. And it, what it's doing is it's pointing to his humanity. And so in a sense, in a sense, y'all, you know, all of us can be considered, you know, son, sons of, of man, right? But that's a unique title for him because for him and him alone, it is a title of, of humility. Because he is God. He is perfect and complete and um, majestic and all of those things, right? But he came into creation as, as a man and demonstrated humility in dying on a cross for when he did nothing wrong, right? So the idea here is when you see Jesus referring to himself as a son of man, he's pointing out that he is indeed a man, but it, it's almost like there's an ironic twist to it because it's a title of humility um, for him and him alone. Does that make sense? Okay. So God the Father has set his, his approval upon the, the son. Okay. Um, so question. Has God set his seal upon you and I? Yes. Yes. Can you back that up a little bit? Yeah. Um, Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, exactly. That we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're authenticated that we belong to God by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Okay? So that's... Um, in Stephen's words, his authentication. Okay. Uh, verse 25. Then they said to him, what, was me, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. All right. So when Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for eternal yeah, do not work for the, the food that perishes, but for, uh, for the food that endures to eternal life. Um, what part of the statement did the crowd focus on? Food that perishes, the food. One, one word, work. They focused on the work. See what they're saying. He said, you know, um, don't work for food that perishes, but for eternal life. And they're focusing on what? Work. What can I do? Isn't that the fundamental question that we always ask? It's like, what can I do? If you go to a Christian bookstore, you see books everywhere that is like seven steps to this and you know the checklist for that and it's always we love to be able to have a recipe that we can follow to achieve something because what happens actually I, I just kind of gave it away didn't I when you achieve something what's the point you earned achieve it. something you earned it right See, and that's the rub that a lot of people, including us, have with salvation by grace through faith is because you didn't earn it. 
and I didn't earn it. Nobody earned it. Nobody can earn it. And that is the first huge obstacle that people have. We can't earn fellowship with God. We can't earn God's love. We don't, we don't deserve that. Um, but people do that, have done that through all history. You can read it, you can read it in the Old Testament. You can read it definitely in the Gospels with the Pharisees running around. You can see it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You can see it in um, various Protestant denominations where somehow, some way, you're going to contribute and um, uh, earn in some way or play a part in your own, your own salvation. So what are they presuming that they're able to do? Exactly. They're, they're presuming that they're able to work. Okay? This is a, a really important aspect of this, of this passage. Um, so what part should they have focused on? What do you think, Sharon? The Lord. The Lord or the eternal life, like you mentioned a few minutes ago, right? They should have asked, hey, tell me about this eternal life. But instead, what did they say? Oh, work? Tell me, tell me about work, okay? Um, so what is this wor- the word for this quote-unquote work that God requires? Faith, exactly. Yes, ma'am. Yes, it's the, wor- the works of Jesus, and it's um, it, work in quotes would be faith, okay? So it's like, no, you're not going to work for anything. It's... Uh, if you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved by grace through faith. So as it turns out, um, even your faith, even your faith and my faith is the work of God. Um, a lot of times that, that one's a hard pill to swallow as well, but we're going to dive into that a little bit more as we go through this. So verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So who are they comparing Jesus to here? Moses, Moses, exactly. So what does that say about who they think he is? Yeah, they think he's just another prophet. Now look, being a prophet was a really big deal, but you're talking about God incarnate versus a prophet. Massive difference there. Infinite difference there. So... Then they talk about um, what work you perform, but didn't they just see a sign? He just, what did he just do at the top of chapter 6? He just fed 5,000 people with just a handful of loaves and fishes, right? Um, so they'd already seen the sign, and what, I guess they're wanting another one. So how do modern skeptics commit the same error? It's kind of a loaded question, I guess, but let's see what you guys think. Right, how does the modern world commit the same error? So, um, have you ever heard a skeptic or a, an atheist say something like, um, you know, if, if God really exists, then um, 
you know, when you make it more obvious. Or God, if you exist, appear before me. I mean, it's like they're mocking him, kind of that, that sort of thing. There's a famous, um, a very famous mathematician and atheist named um, Bertrand Russell, who was very prominent um, early to mid 20th century. And he was asked by a journalist, um, you know, if you die and you come face to face with your, your creator, what would you ask him? And Bertrand Russell said, um, sir, why did you not make evidence of your existence more, uh, more obvious or more sufficient? That was his word, more sufficient, right? And so when I, I look through that, you know, the question is, what would more sufficient or what would sufficient evidence actually look like? Right? If, if, um, if God, metaphorically, of course, ripped open the sky and stuck his head, you know, I know he doesn't have a head, but stuck his head out and said, hey, Bertrand, here I am. You think Bertrand Russell would actually acknowledge the existence of God? I don't. I think he would say that he would, of course, he's passed away now, but I think he would say that he was hallucinating or there was some, some psycho thing going on, some psychotic episode. He would come up with a reason. He'd come up with a naturalistic reason because he was committed to that, okay? Um, and so, you know, this is an example of, you know, miracles and signs and, and that sort of thing. Those don't convert anybody. Those don't really change anybody's mind. I remember... Oh man, that was probably 15 years ago. There was a thing where, hey, they found Noah's Ark again, you know? And uh, a buddy of mine and I had just heard about it, and then we were going to lunch. And on our way to lunch, we were talking about, oh, can you imagine? Imagine the people that are going to, you know, finally the, the naysayers are, are, are going to be proven wrong, and imagine the people that are going to, you know, um, believe in, you know, mass convert. And, and then as we sat down, it actually sank in what we were talking about. You know what? It's not going to change anybody's mind. Because those who believe, believe not in their own power, but by the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't matter what evidence is in front of us, if the Holy Spirit is not working in our heart, it ain't going to happen. And if the Holy Spirit is working in our heart, it doesn't matter how little evidence there is, it's going to happen. So do you kind of see, it's a rhetorical question, but do you kind of see something self-serving in the uh, he gave them, he gave them bread? You know? It's like they're going, hey, um, you know, pr prove that you're something special. G give me this. Give me, you know, he gave them that. He, give us some more bread. I'm, I'm hungry this morning. You know, that sort of thing. All righty. Um, any questions so far? Nope, good? All right. Chris, yes, ma'am. It looks to me like they're literally, specifically, trying to get him to do the same thing he just did. Mm -hmm. to yeah. And he just told them, you know, don't stick to this bread. Exactly. Yeah. Still. Right. That, yeah, because it was dinner the night before. Now they're wanting breakfast, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, good point. It's just like, yeah, hey, hey magic man, um, you know, give, give us some more food. 
conjure up some more food, you know. All right, so verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So how often do we need to be reminded that all good things come from God? Continually. That is one thing that we do continuously need. We're going to talk about something at the bottom of this set of bullet points that we don't continuously need, but one thing we do continuously need um, is to remember, we need reminders that all good things come from God. So when you get into these so-called healing ministries, um, who is typically glorified in these things? It ain't God, you know? It's, it's the guy doing the, the healing. I actually saw one. I don't know whether to laugh or cry or do both on some of this stuff, but I, I saw, this was supposed to be a legitimate video. There was a, let's see, what was it like this? It was something like this, and the, the video was being taken from the side, and they said, this, this woman's hands um, are of different lengths. And there was a person saying, hey, make, you know, Lord, make the hands, I command you, make the, the hands the same length. And she started doing this. And it was the most awful thing I'd seen. And it's like, I, I kind of started laughing, but I'm like, that's horrible. They're making a mockery of, of who Christ is and what the apostles did while they were, while they were here, you know. Um, but always, 100% of the time, it's that, that person that is being glorified in these kinds of ministries. Um, and not God. And then I've got a uh, note to self, the story about the building. It's like, wow, how, how cryptic can you be, right? So I remember when we were coming in to look at this building, the first time we ever walked in here, um, the elders came in, and um, it was kind of dark in here. And um, you know, I was looking around. I, I couldn't see very well, and I'm like, hey, um, you know, the pastor of the former place was, was here. I said, hey, can you, can you hit the lights? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, but he said, it's a, it's a bit of a process. Got to turn on a computer, and I'm like, okay, that's strange. So a couple of minutes later, the next, he goes, okay, here we go. Next thing I know, there's these, I think, six lights up here on the, up on the stage. And the stage, of course, was a lot bigger back then. And these lights started you know, like purple lights, I think they were, were shooting up and then started kind of doing this thing, right? And, and there was fog, you know, like a fog machine, smoke machine, whatever they call those things. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, I, I can't believe what I'm saying. And I just was sick to my stomach and I, I had to walk, I walked out. Um, Bo came out behind me and he's like, he said, I hear you. He said, but you have to understand in these, these kinds of places, the pastor is the man. You, you essentially get your blessings through him. And so and the, and the, the, the guy had shown, he said, here's the, essentially the light show that we do when 
the pastor comes out, and it was this special light thing. Could you imagine? All of a sudden, spotlights and smoke machines and I don't know what else when Ken is walking up to the podium. Can you imagine something like that? I, I, I can't. <laughs> I don't want to. Um, but anyway, the, the point is, is not to throw rocks at, at that particular church. The, the point is that... Um, it is very easy to exalt the human beings in various ministries and things of that nature. And, hey, we got them back up. Cool. Sole de gloria, okay, to the glory of God alone. In my mind, that should be the first solo. So, solo, sola. It should, you know, because typically we do, we go through the other four and then it's to the glory of God. You know, in reality, I think it should be to the glory of God, we, all these other things occur, right? Because it's about God's glory, um, not our own. Sorry, didn't mean to go that deep into that soapbox. Um, so anyway, so they were giving glory to, to Moses. You know, Moses did this, Moses did that. And Je Jesus is saying, no, it wasn't Moses, it was God. God worked through Moses. Um, Moses was an instrument in God's hands. So question, we're talking about bread. How much more important was bread in the ancient world than it is now? What do y'all think? Andy wants to say something. Go ahead. There's no such thing as gluten-free. No gluten Thank you for that. <laughs> they hadn't genetically altered the wheat yet. All right, cool. So today, what if there is no bread? Literally, let them eat cake, right? <laughs> you know, somebody got her you know, head chopped off, I think, around that, um, not for saying something like that, but you know, somebody said something like that you know, a couple hundred years ago. But today, that's like literally the thing. I mean, there's very few people in the Western world, very few people that are, are starving. Um, What's that? Yeah, um, yeah, right. Um, you know, in, in third world countries, there's, of course, a lot of people that are, are starving. Um, and it's, it's an absolute travesty because they don't have to. But the, the point is, is that in the Western world, we can't really understand the importance of bread or even really the importance of food, because most of us probably don't even know what it's like to really be hungry or to not know where our next, food, uh, next meal is coming from. If you wind back the clock a couple of thousand years, um, it was a day-to-day -day ordeal. And if they didn't have bread, they weren't going to live very long. You know, And so you and I have really trouble... We have trouble internalizing exactly what this bread of life really means, okay? And so it is, it is your, literally your lifeline. Think of it as oxygen. You know, I think we can understand what it's like not, what it's like not to have oxygen. Um, Jesus could have said to us, I'm the oxygen of life or, you know, something of that nature. Um, so what does Jesus, uh, as the bread of God, say about who he is? How about 
What does it say about his importance? So Jesus says the bread of life, um, I mean, he's our, he's our nourishment, our spiritual nourishment. I, I mean, in a lot of ways, he's our physical nourishment. I mean, he is our nourishment. Um, and how does this jive with most modern-day understandings? What do most people think about Jesus and his importance? Yeah, Jesus is something that you kind of, you deal with on Sundays, if you even really deal with it, right? Um, and then you go about your business the, the rest of the week. But, um, you know, we've kind of put Jesus in this compartment and, um, you know, taken that, that nourishment and that vitality um, away from him, I think. So what does requesting the bread, sorry, I can't read that. Bread always reveal about their understanding of it. Sir, give us this bread always. What does that indicate? They need to receive it. It's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing, right? But in reality, Jesus is the bread of life. And once you receive the bread of life, he doesn't go away. Okay? And so it's not, it's not like he has to be crucified um, every week. It's not like you need to receive him every week. It's not like you have to worry about, oh, you know, I think I did more bad things than good things this week. Okay, I need to receive Jesus again. And it's not like, um, you know, oh, I've got unrepentant sin, and so I have, I'm risking going to hell, and I need to receive Jesus. No, you receive Jesus, and it's a done deal. All right, verse 35. Um, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. First question, who talks like that? And what I mean by that is, you know, I, there's a lot of cults out there, um, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and others, that deny the deity of Christ. The Muslims deny the deity of Christ. But if you're saying that I am the, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, if he's not God... Think about a person that's not actually God saying something like that. They're stone-cold crazy, right? And so you have this idea, uh, C.S. Lewis pointed this out. He said, you have this idea of a lot of people look at Jesus and say, you know what, I, I, he wasn't God, you know, but he was a really good moral teacher. And so, I, you know, he, was, he told us to love one another and things like that. Well, you know what? He also said that he is the bread of life. He didn't say my teachings are the bread of life. He didn't say my teachings are things that you should do. No, he said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am eternal life. And so if those things aren't true, then like C.S. Lewis said, he's either, we have to ask ourselves if he believed them, if he actually believed what he was saying. And if he did believe it, 
um, but he wasn't really God, then he was crazy. And if he didn't believe it, but he said stuff like that, well, you know what? Everybody that was close to him died a violent death on his behalf except for one person. And so if he wasn't actually God, then he is one of the most evil human beings that's ever walked the planet. And those, pardon the expression, but those dogs don't hunt, okay? He is God. He's either God or he's nothing. And so the idea that Jesus is just some teacher like Confucius or Buddha or whatever is a, a ridiculous position to hold, okay? All right. Have signs or evidence ever convinced anyone, or, um, anyone of anything about God? And no, we've already talked about that. So verse 36 and 37, how are they connected? I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So what does 37 infer about 36? Exactly. Those who come to me, those who the, basically those who the Father give me are going to believe. And then he's saying um, that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Therefore, I think we can conclude that the Father, they were not part of the Father's elect. What does, it, what does this say about the security of our salvation? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Isn't that a comfort? Yep. Sorry, we're running out of time. I've got to get moving. And how does the last verse impact our understanding of the Trinity? For I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Clearly in the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity are fully and eternally God. Right? But functionally, the way they interact with the world, there is some kind of hierarchy. And clearly it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, Father, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. First, second, that's the reason we say first, second, and third persons of the Trinity. Something we get out of this is that the, sub, the Son is submitting to the will of the Father. Okay? So any situation, and well, one more, one more comment. The Son is submitting to the will of the Father. The Son is clearly of infinite worth, value, just as the Father is. The Father is not more God than the Son or anything like that. And so what happens is submitting to the one who submits to authority and then the one who is that authority um, or delegates or trying to think of the word, passes through that authority, is one is not of more value than the other one. We can take that um, into the home as well. Submitting does not mean that um, one person submitting to another does not mean that one is of more value than the other or that one is more the image of God than the other or anything like that, okay? So it's a... Um, just a, a note that I like to point out anytime I see that the Son or the Holy Spirit submitting to the, to the Father. Okay, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing 
of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So notice the emphasis on the will of the Father and the obedience of the Son. And the souls of the saints, um, we'll talk about this more as we get into ecclesiology, um, that's in probably another month or so, um, but our souls, essentially us, we as people, we are a gift. We are the bride that is a gift to the Son, from the Father to the Son. And I think that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing, and I think it helps us to put our own salvation into, into context. Or into perspective, I should say. The loss of a single soul that has been given to him is unthinkable. You have a infinitely good triune God that um, is also infinitely capable. And so he will not, absolutely will not, lose a single soul that he has been given. So if verse 40 is to be taken in isolation, that is, for, uh, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should, not, should have eternal life. If verse 40 is taken in isolation, what would you think about the human ability to believe? With that verse in isolation, it looks like it's saying that, you know, who, you know whosoever believes. Um, but the, the point is, it, it's, it's not teaching that. It's not teaching that humans have the ability to believe because we have to look at the, the rest of the verse or the rest of the passage. Everyone who what? Everyone who looks upon him will believe. So mm-hmm. Decision. Mm-hmm. But right. Right. I, I think you're. I think you're correct. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, "I am the bread that came down from heaven." They said, "Is is um, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Um, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven?'" So first of all, where have you heard the word grumble before? Wondering, in the, yeah. In the Exodus, the Jews started grumbling, and that led to a, a mess, right? And again, we've, I think we've already talked about this theme. How insane would Jesus' statement be if he wasn't actually God? Um, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So do you see the tension here between his deity and his humanity? Um, I guess what I'm getting getting at there is in verse 42, they're saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? Right? And that's, that's the amazing thing about who Christ is, being fully God, but coming down and being raised as a, as a human being you know, with a father and a mother in a community, you know? I mean, there's, there might have been people there that babysat him or something. I mean, verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Uh, no, one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So this idea of drawing, the Father who sent me draws him. What do many preachers say it means for the Father to draw someone? Anybody ever heard a sermon on this, this passage? A lot, of, a lot of folks will say that this drawing refers to wooing and romancing. It's like, it's like God is trying to, the Father is trying to entice people, you know, like a, a love-struck teenager looking for a prom date, right? And it kinda, it's kind of sickening, to be quite honest. But this idea of drawing, the Father drawing, the word is also used for drawing a sword out of its sheath, okay? The Father does not draw us by trying to entice us. The Father draws us by drawing us like like a sword, okay? Um, So how does the need for the Father to draw someone relate to the simple requirement of faith? So where does the faith come from? Essentially, what's that? The Holy Spirit, exactly. The Father, the drawing, bless you, the drawing is the Father sending the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit regenerating us, and then there's faith. No, I I didn't make a mistake when I said that. Regeneration precedes faith. That's one of the things we'll be talking about. This is often called illumination, um, you've heard of revelation, which is God revealing, but then illumination is the Holy Spirit opening our eyes. And, and then there, you know, I talked about regeneration. We'll get into that a little bit later. So, last paragraph. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So verse 51 is clearly an invitation to believe. Right? All you got to do is believe. So how does this jive with the notion that God's sovereign action on the soul? It's one of the mysteries, um, the mysteries that we can never really truly understand. Were you going to say something? No? Okay. Um, God has given us the ability to live, to live our lives. He's given us human responsibility. But at the same time, um, God is sovereign. And so... um, how those two things relate, we can't really get our minds around. We know that they're real. Um, we're held accountable for what we don't do, but at the same time, we also know that, um, that again, God, God, is, God is sovereign. And again, it's something where we'll go into some verses, um, some passages in, in a few weeks where it'll, it'll highlight within the same passage kind of the, the two sides of that. And, it's, and again, it's the sort of thing that we can't, 
really get our minds around. I mean, think about, um, was it Philippians 2? Um, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? That's the first half. What's the second half? Or there's God working in you. Right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God working in you. Okay? Think about that. You know? It's, it's heavy. Um, so theologians have distinguished between the general or gospel call. So we have this idea of a call. So there's the general or gospel call, and then there's the particular, particular or effectual call. And I'm going to... Oh, sorry. Um, so the gospel call... So in the Bible, you'll see, in the New Testament in particular, actually in the Old Testament too, you'll see the word call used in like two different ways, or at least two different ways. One way is when the gospel call goes out and it, the, the, the gospel is proclaimed um, to the world. So who does that? We do that, okay? The other way that call is used is when a, the elect here that call, hear that general call, and then they believe, they're regenerated. It's, it's effectual. It, um, the purpose is, is achieved. Now, who performs that call? Holy Spirit, exactly. And so um, we ran out of time, unfortunately, but we were going to talk about kind of the distinction between the, those, those two calls. And then what we're going to do is get into what we refer to as the, the order of salvation. Apologize for running out of time. I think there's a lot of loose threads out there that I was really wanting to kind of wind up um, on the next slide, actually, but we're already a little bit over time. So, um, uh, again, you know, this is a, um, can be a very difficult topic. Um, it can be a very deep topic. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to pick up next week um, tie up some loose ends, and then we're gonna gonna begin to move forward. Right, Stuart? Would you mind? Father, thank you for uh, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Father, on our own, we would we would reject Him, but you um, draw us with your Spirit to receive faith in Christ. And I thank you for for that work on our behalf that Jesus did for us. I pray that you continue to, to work your, your process of sanctification in our lives for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, sir.